You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So this morning, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 34. So if you have a copy of uh, the Bible with you, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you don't have a hard copy of the text, um, but you would like to be in one, you can find one under a seat near you. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures at home, we would love for you to just take that home as a gift from us so you have access to the word of God yourselves at your own house. So this morning we're going to read from Exodus chapter 34, and we are going to read verses 10 through 17. Just a little warning, there's some strong language in this portion of text, but it is the word of God, so we are going to read it together this morning. So when you are a- if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Again, we're going to... Read Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 17. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as I have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their, daughter, da- their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's a great day to be gathered on the Lord's Day to worship together. Um, okay, we're in Exodus 34. As Lauren said, we're going to try to conquer most of the chapter. We're not going to have time for it all, so we're going to stay focused on kind of what we read for the most part. Uh, But I'm excited, and I kind of just want to recap for a minute before we pray. So what we've seen so far in the book of Exodus is uh, a lot of things, and we're kind of nearing uh, the end of our sermon series through it. We've got about a month left. It's pretty crazy. So congratulations to you who have been here from the beginning, stuck with it. We have made it. Amen. Um, But... What we've seen is God has, uh, so Exodus kind of starts, right? You get the big story of God rescuing his people out of bondage and slavery. God, uh, through these mighty acts, uh, shows himself to be great above all the gods, right? All the false gods. He comes in with all these mighty acts. He rescues his people. He brings them out into the wilderness. He promises them this land that he's going to lead them to that's flowing with milk and honey. And what we see is kind of twofold. One, we see that the people of God continually uh, dishonor him. They continually kind of forget his covenant with them. They complain, they whine, they break his commands, and they do not honor him as God, right? And then what you see is God, on the other hand, is continuing despite uh, what we would say maybe better judgment. Uh, Obviously, it's God's judgment, so it is good, but he continues to be gracious to the people of God, right? He continues to renew covenant with them. He continues to be their God and to give them these 
promises. And then we saw a couple weeks ago what happened was kind of this culmination of uh, the people of God breaking God's covenant by building this golden calf. And they worshiped it. They danced around it and did all these abominations around the calf and said, this is the God who rescued us from Egypt. And God is furious, right? And so he uh, begins to enact his wrath on them. Moses pleads with God to rescue the people despite their sin and to go up with them. And God is now at the point after this happens, he is renewing his covenant with them. And that's kind of where we pick up in verse 10. Now, as as Lauren did say before she read, there's a little bit of strong language in here. Um, So just FYI, if you have kids in here, let's do it. So we're going to pray and then we're going to get started. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us. God, you are a a faithful God. You are a covenant-keeping God. You have loved us when we were still sinners. And at the right time, Lord Jesus, you died for us. And so we're grateful. We're grateful to be under your care. We're grateful to be under your covenant. We're grateful to worship you and you alone and no other gods. So God, I pray as we go through uh, the word, you'd help us not to be distracted, help us to fight, to hear from your word, to know your word. Holy Spirit, would you enliven us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear that we might live. We need you, God, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I want to ask kind of three questions about the text. I want to spend most of my time on the third question, but there are some things I think it's important. It all kind of ties together of what's going on here in this chapter. And so the first question I want to ask, because uh, it's all about this covenant renewal, okay, that's happening with God and his people. So the first question I want to ask is, what are the promises of the covenant renewal that God gives, okay? So oftentimes with, with covenants, you get this promise from the person establishing the covenant, and you get some other things kind of involved in that. So I want to ask, well, what are the promises? What is God promising to do as he renews this covenant with his people? And one thing to keep in mind as we get into what the text shows is that this is a a renewing of the covenant we've been talking about, right? And so uh, God has already made a covenant. He's established a covenant with his people in the book of Exodus. And so all of those promises continue into this uh, renewal of the covenant. But there's a few things that God really emphasizes here in Exodus 34 that I want to focus on. The first one is that God promises to do marvelous and awesome works among his people. People. So let's read verse 10 together. It says, And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So the first thing God promises here is he promises to do marvelous and awesome works among his people. Now, we've already seen God do some amazing things, right? I mean, God literally fills an entire city of frogs. He brings darkness over the face of the earth. He already did all of these wonders. He rains down bread from heaven. He, uh, you know, brought water from the rocks. There's so many things that God has already done. And what God's telling his people is those aren't even the half of it, right? I'm about to do even more marvelous and awesome things. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to work among you and do these works. And so this is what he's promising the people, and then God continues. God also promises in verse 11 to drive out the Canaanite peoples because of their idolatry and their hatred of God. It's what he says in verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, 
I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We'll stop right there. So God promises his people, I'm still going to do what I promised I would do before, which is I'm going to drive out these people among you, right? Remember, God made a distinction between the Canaanite peoples or really the world and God's people, right? God was creating a people. He was taking Abraham out of the Canaanites. They're really kind of, the Israelis are basically, uh, you know, kind of kin with the Canaanites, but God plucks them out of that, right? And God says, I'm going to make from Abraham a distinct people. You will be my people. I will be your God. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to drive out the Canaanite peoples and I'm going to drive them away from you. Not one will be left and you guys will occupy the land, you will take over, and this will be what I give you, right? This is God just kind of reiterating these promises of the covenant. Now, uh, one thing to kind of make mention as we read on, God is going to drive out the Canaanites, not simply just because he doesn't like them, but because of their idolatry, right? The Canaanites were uh, notorious for um, worshiping false gods. They were committed to anarchy against the true God, and they committed to the lifestyle of the false gods. They sacrificed their babies. They uh, worship with temple prostitutes. It was an evil people and God was going to drive them away. So these are some of the promises here mentioned. And then we continue and we've got to ask the question, okay, well, what are the stipulations of the covenant renewal? Okay, because when God gives a covenant, he says, look, this is what I'm going to do. And here is what you must do as a part of this covenant. And so there are stipulations, right? It's kind of like when Jesus says, you are my friend if you do what I tell you, Right? That's, a, that's an important stipulation and distinction, right? Jesus doesn't just call everybody friends. He says, no, you're my friend if you do what I say. And so God right here is he's giving stipulations of his covenant. And there's a few of them that I want to walk through. Uh, really kind of the, the overarching stipulation of this covenant with God's people is the Ten Commandments, right? This is kind of the thing. We get this from verse 28, which says this. Um, so he was there with the Lord. This is kind of after all that happened. And Moses went up on the mountain with the Lord. And the Lord's going to write the Ten Commandments again on this tablet. And he says, uh, so, yeah, so he was with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. And neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So we got overarching here. The words of the covenant are the Ten Commandments. You will obey these ten. But he's going to zero in on the commandment that they just breached, right, which was that really two of them that you won't have. Uh, any false gods, that God will be God alone, and that you won't create any graven image and worship that is God, right? And so God's going to zone in on this when he's talking about the stipulations of his covenant, because it is a clear reminder of what just happened when they basically exchanged God, right, for this false God and built an image and worshiped it, right? That's what happened. So here's a few things God says. One, God commands that they do not have any other gods but him alone. Let's look at verse 12. It says, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down the ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God says, number one, you will have no other gods but me. I will be the God. I am God alone. So when you go into the land, you are going to destroy all the representations of the false gods, whether it's the statues, whether it's their altars, the things they used to um, worship their false gods, you're going to get rid of it all. It's going to be burnt down, destroyed, kill it. I want you to go through the whole land. Don't leave one piece of it remaining because I am a jealous 
God is what God tells his people. So he commands that they go in and they destroy all the falsehood. They need to destroy all the false gods, burn down the altars. This is what God commands. And then God continues. God commands that they do not make covenants with the people of the land. So he mentioned that in uh, 12 there, but look at verse 15. He kind of clarifies and he says this. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited that you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. And so God is saying, Do not make a covenant with the people. Don't allow your sons to marry their daughters, because what's going to happen? You've made a covenant with me, is what God's saying. It's between you and I. I will be your God. You will be my people. You do not make a covenant with the other people because you are going to go into the land and you are going to play the harlot, right? You're going to be in this adulterous, sinful relationship where you're going to whore after their gods instead of worshiping the one true God. So he's given them a gracious warning. Do not make a covenant with the people. You've made a covenant with me. That is it, right? And so they're not to intermingle. This isn't a a, a racist thing. This is God saying, if you intermingle with them, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be drawn away into falsehood and you will be destroyed. Do not do it. So destroy everything. Have no false gods. Don't make a covenant with the people. God also commands that they don't make any gods out of cast metal. Get this in verse 17. It's a very clear scripture. Um, it says, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal, right? And that's the same Hebrew word about the golden calf. And so this is a clear reiteration of Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments that you shouldn't do this. And then it's probably like a sting to them, right? Because this is what they did was they did the exact thing they weren't supposed to do. And God's saying, by the way, don't do that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm being gracious. I'm renewing my covenant with you. Do not make a false god out of a graven image. And then lastly, God commands that they keep the feasts. I like this one a lot. So I'm not going to read it all, but basically verse 18 through 26-ish talks about these feasts that they were supposed to have. Here's the feasts that were mentioned. is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Ingathering, which happened at the end of the year, and the Feast of the Passover. All of these feasts were designed by God to be ways that the people of God could celebrate the Lord, celebrate his covenant, celebrate his mighty works, give glory and honor to him, and to enjoy his blessings. These feasts were not just solemn, right? They were um, celebrations. They would bring out all the best wine. They would bring out the good meat. They would celebrate together. And sometimes these would last days. It's like Christmas break multiple times a year where people are feasting. They're getting together with their families. They're celebrating God's goodness. And so I love that we get this juxtaposition because God doesn't just call his people to destroy the bad, but he also calls them to celebrate the good and the true. This is, this is, a, a, this is a good thing about our God, right? He commands that they, they do both of these things, right? So we ought to be people who both abhor evil, hate it with a passion, kill our idols, destroy sin, want nothing to do with falsehood, but also we should be a people that celebrate the goodness of God, which is what we're doing right here every time we gather on Sunday morning. It's amazing, right? We're celebrating. And so God commands both the seriousness of killing sin and both the gloriousness, which is not a word, but I'm going to use it, of feasting, okay? So they should be celebrating God's grace. God's renewing this covenant with them. He's being gracious to his people. 
He's loving them in unbelievable ways. As the text Ty went through last week, it talked about God abounding in steadfast love, being merciful to his people. They ought to celebrate that as they go into the Canaanite land and destroy the false gods. There's true honor in feasting, and it's important for us to remember. So that was the promise and the stipulations. And I want to talk about verse 14 uh, I want to ask the question, what, what, is the, what is the reason for the covenant renewal? What's driving God as he renews his covenant with his people? Why is God renewing it in the first place? What's God doing? Why is he doing it? Why is he doing this for his people? Why is he being gracious? Why is he being merciful? Why is he giving them covenant again, even though they broke their end of the bargain? And the simple answer is God is a jealous God. Verse 14 says, his name is jealous. Let's read it one more time. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Why are you going to go into the land and destroy all of the altars, all of the idols, and drive out the peoples from your midst? Why do you have to be separate like that? Why are you going to do these things? Why are you going to worship me as God and God alone? Because I am a jealous God. My name is Jealous. God is defining himself in a real way with jealousy. And this is important for us. And I got some things under this that we should cover. The first one is what is God's jealousy? What's that mean, right? If you have lived in our culture for any amount of time, we usually use jealousy in a bad connotation, right? It's like, oh, you're just jealous because I did something you couldn't do, right? Or uh, it's someone is just uh, jealous because they're haters, right? Haters are just going to hate. You just let them be jealous, right? And we got all these sayings and we think of jealousy as just this kind of like, uh, you're just jealous because you couldn't do as good as I could, right? Or when there's more serious forms of jealousy and all of that. So when we hear that God is jealous, that might be confusing for us. So what does that mean, right? God doesn't sin, does he? Absolutely not. He doesn't, but he's a jealous God. So it's got to mean that at least when it comes to God, at least, right, that jealousy is a good thing, not a bad thing. I think one of the confusing things about jealousy is that sometimes we confuse jealousy with envy. Uh, and so I want to kind of give a probably very poor definition. So I'm not a scholar, okay? I do have a history degree, but that's it, okay? And it doesn't teach you how to define words, but let's define envy first. Envy is a desire to gain possession of something that doesn't belong to you, right? Simply put, that's what it is, right? So we think of covetousness, right? They have something, someone has something that I want. I envy that thing, but it doesn't belong to me, right? This is you're scrolling through your Instagram, you're scrolling through your Facebook, and you start seeing everyone's life and all the things that God's blessed them with and how good their life is and how awesome it is. And you start to think, oh man, I really want that. And there could be more forms, right? As you get to covenants, right? That's why God in the Ten Commandments says you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife, right? And there's all these um, stipulations there. But simply put, envy is to, to desire something that doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. Therefore, you shouldn't have it or need it or want it, right? This is that sinful thing. That's often what we think of when we think of jealousy. Now, jealousy, I would define uh, as a desire um, to maintain faithfulness with something that does belong to you, okay? So obviously with God, this is relational faithfulness here, but uh, if something does belong to you, like a, a husband, right, who has a spouse, has a wife or a wife that has a husband and you want that your spouse to be faithful to you, that's a good form of jealousy, right? That's you've committed a covenant together. Does that make sense? And so jealousy is not necessarily a a bad thing and especially when it comes to God's jealousy. God's jealousy is much different than our own form of what we would consider jealousy. It's much different. Um, 
that form of jealousy in the human form, right, can be, uh, you know, focused on uh, the human self, right, and all of these kind of maybe selfish, uh, you know, bad desires, whatever it may be. But uh, for God, it's not so. And so I want to read uh, Eric, I think it's uh, Thoanus, I don't really know how to pronounce it, but he does spell his name right, if there's any other Eric's in the room. Um, he spells it E-R-I-K, which is my name and how I spell it. So I figured it'd be good to use him. He says this, he says, God's jealousy is his righteous and loving demand of exclusive faithfulness from his covenant people. Because God rightly loves his own glory and graciously loves us, he demands that we worship and serve him above all else. This is the jealousy of our God. It's good, right? It's a good thing. God demands exclusive faithfulness, 100% commitment from his covenant people because he is committed to his own glory and is gracious to us. Therefore, he demands it and says, you will be faithful to me and me alone. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will not worship the false gods. You will destroy them because I am a jealous God and my name is jealous. Now, if you remember the 10 commandments, I'm gonna go back to Exodus 20, starting in verse three. We're gonna read the same commandment that he's reiterating in the covenant and God uses the same term of jealousy here. Let's look at it. So Exodus 20, starting in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God says, you're not going to do this because I'm a jealous God. And I will enact justice to the third and fourth generation on those who are faithless. And I will love those who are steadfast for a thousand. So it's a good word for us. Uh, you know, the scriptures continue, right? Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, and you're gonna, you see the Psalm 78, Psalm 79, call upon God's jealousy. Uh, and and it's over and over again in the scripture. You see this, Paul talks about in the New Testament having a jealousy. That is God given for the people of God. They might not go off into idolatry. And so we see this theme over and over again. And so God is jealous. He's a jealous God. Now, what is God jealous for? These are some good questions that I want to go through, okay, that we're kind of seeing in this text here. Um, the first one is that God is jealous for his deity. God is jealous for his deity. God is the only glorious and praiseworthy being in all of the cosmos. There is no other worthy being of God, right? It's just one God. The story of the Bible is not multiple gods fighting for preeminence. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is there's one God and he is God alone and he will be God alone forever. And he doesn't change. He's God. And so God, God is jealous of his deity. He will not let another be deity with him. It doesn't work that way, right? These false gods, as Paul uh, commentates in the New Testament, are just demons, right? They're demons. This is a, when Paul says that our battle against, is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this present age, he's talking about these demonic forces that want to usurp God and be God themselves, and they get all of these people to, to worship them as false idols, but they cannot and they will not be God because God shares his deity with no one. He is the beginning and the end. He's the creator and the sustainer of everything that's ever existed and will ever exist. God cannot share his position of deity with another. He will not. It's impossible. Imagine being the only God of the universe, 
creating all the cosmos, creating people, giving unbelievable blessings and mercy and kindness and grace to those people and being the sustainer of their very life and then having them worship some metal image as the giver of that life. What a travesty. What an affront to the God of heaven, right? It is a front to the God of heaven. Make no mistake, these people, the Canaanites, were not just innocently, no, I think that this cow is God. No, they were haters of God, and they must be destroyed is what God says, right? They were worshiping false gods. God will not share his deity. God commands there will be no other gods but him alone. He is the sovereign of the universe. There will be no other. Okay, so God is jealous for his deity. He is God of the universe. God is also jealous for his glory, This is also important. As we said, God is the only being in all the cosmos worthy of praise. If anyone were to attempt to get God's glory for his mighty works, this would be impossible. God is glorious. And so an important lesson in the Bible, and it's a hard one for some people to get as they come to the Christian faith, is that God exists, the world exists, Uh, God created all of existence, kind of what I mean to say, for his glory and his glory alone. This is is amazing. This is the truth. We're about to celebrate Reformation Day tomorrow. For the less holy, we're going to celebrate Halloween. Just kidding. I had to say it. Uh, Just joking. You celebrate Halloween, it's all good. The men's ministry did a podcast about it. You can can listen to it. But what was one of the big truths about the Reformation? God's glory alone, right? God is glorious. He's for his glory. And when we think about this, because we're human creatures, sometimes we think, uh, and maybe you're holier than me, but you know, I've thought before, like, man, it seems kind of weird. God's for his glory, right? It seems kind of selfish. When you look at Jesus, you see that Jesus laid down that glory for the people to die for us, right? But God is like all throughout the Bible is saying, for my, my sake, I do it. For my sake, I save you. For my glorious name, I'll rescue you, right? God is all about his glory. And he will not share his glory with another. And this is a good thing. If God were to flip that and say, look, I'm going to exist for you, to give you blessing, right? It's the, um, you know, this is a kind of false prosperity gospel, right? Which says that God, God exists to basically bless you and make much of you. If God existed for that, well, he wouldn't be God, right? That means there would be something more glorious, which would be you. And I hate to break it to you, you are not very glorious, right? God must be about himself, above all other things. If he was not, he would not be God. God is all about himself. And it so happens that God is so gracious to us that that very thing, that very truth, that God is about his glory and his glory alone happens to work out for our ultimate good and joy and purpose. Look, you and I were created to glorify God. We bear his image. We spread his glory to the ends of the earth. As we're fruitful and multiply, as we make disciples, we spread his glory. You and I are glorious in a sense because we're wrapped up in the true glory, which is God's. And so let us not be too quick to try to attribute glory to ourselves. What a, what a grave sin that is that we, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, right? We, we shouldn't be. God is he's, he's jealous for his glory. Trust me. You think you're high and mighty. You think you're glorious. God's going to be gracious to you and he's going to humble you. This is what God does. God will not share his glory with another. He will make sure every knee bows. He is the glorious one. And he is saying, drive these people out. I will be glorified, me alone, and go. Third thing, when we ask, what is God jealous for? And we see in this, God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for his people. 
God could have just destroyed them, right? I mean, right away. That's all he had to do. The golden calf thing, that was enough. God should have slain them. I mean, really a long time before that, God should have slain them. shouldn't even have rescued them from bondage. But God was gracious to his people because he's jealous for his people. His people will not serve another, right? God is, make no mistake, making a people for himself that will worship and honor him for all of eternity. That's going to happen whether you join that cause or not. Right? God is going, he's jealous for his, his people. He will have a pure and spotless bride. That's what God is working on. So this is why God makes these commands to drive out the people because God has chosen a people that he is jealous for. He's chosen a people he's jealous for and he is going to renew them. He demands that they keep themselves faithful to him that they forsake evil and pursue the good. He will not let his people worship false gods because he is their God and he will be their people. Okay. Making sure we're good time-wise here. Um, oh, I have a clock now. Okay. I didn't have a clock last gathering, so it was uh, a little bit of a challenge. Okay. So one more thing I want to ask about this idea of God's jealousy I think is important for us is how do we respond to God's jealousy? We see it in the text. This is good. This is great. God is a jealous God. Therefore, because he's for himself, his glory, his deity, and his people, he will either exact vengeance or or he will renew his people and he will have covenant faithfulness. The false gods will be destroyed. He will drive out the people. He will make good on his promises. So how do we respond to God's jealousy as the people of God? I have a few things. One is that we should fear lest we play the whore. It's important. We, we should be terrified. We think about the, the jealousy of God. God is jealous for his people. Let's look at Ezekiel 16. I'm not going to read all of it. It's a, it's a long passion, uh, you know, portion of scripture, and it's very good on this, this subject, but I want to read uh, a few verses in the front and then a little bit on the back end. I want to hear what God says about his people. So uh, it's a big analogy for God's people. God is saying that um, you know, th- there's plenty of analogies of who God is, right? He's our father, we're his children. Uh, there's also the analogy that uh, we, um, are, as the people of God, are God's bride and he is our husband, okay? This is a general, like the whole um, people of God. And so he's using this analogy right here as he kind of warns his people about their idols. So I want to read it together. Starting verse 1 of Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and Bear. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. 
and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty and it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. So that was a lot of text, I apologize. And he goes on, all right, and he's basically saying, you were abandoned on the road to be dead as an infant and I came and I nurtured you and I saved you. I spoke to you and made you live and then you grew and you became at the age of love and I said, that you were beautiful, right? And I adorned you. I gave you all, I cleaned the blood off you and I gave you all of these things, right? But all these ornaments on you and I made a covenant with you, right? I went into marriage with you as your husband and I gave all of these nice things to you, right? And then what he's gonna do in chapter 16 is he's gonna go start to talk about how uh, his people played the harlot and just despised basically the husband and went off to these false gods. And then here's where we get and what I mean by fearing. Um, Ezekiel 16, in, starting verse 35, this is how God kind of concludes a little bit. He says, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare and they shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. So what God says to his people as they commit spiritual adultery. Now I do encourage you to read Ezekiel 16. He does talk about his covenant towards the end. We don't have time to get there. But my point is this, as we read what God is saying here about his jealousy, what he's saying about driving his uh, driving the people out of the land and his people being committed to him as God and God alone is a consuming fire, right? And there should be fear among us, right? We can't just dance off with our idols like there's no consequences. God is a jealous God. He will not be mocked. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. This is a hard word, but it's a good one. Your idols will slay you. If you continue in idolatry, God will give you up to your idols and they will stone you to death and they will cut you into pieces. That is the end of idolatry. That is the end of worshiping false gods is to be slain. Its end is death and death alone. There's no life in idols. It's only death. So the jealousy of God, it's not a fickle thing. He will not be mocked. It's a real thing and we should fear. We should be afraid of our glorious God. Number two, we should be killing our idols. This kind of builds on each other, right? But because we fear, we should be killing the idols in our lives. I was going to read Colossians 3. I don't have time. It says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Romans 8, be killing sin, right? You get the famous uh, quote, be killing sin or be killing you. But the fear 
of forsaking our Lord for false gods should push us into killing our idols. This is a truth. This is how we should react. We should not treat sin as something to be close to us that we have when we want it, but we should slay it as a fire-breathing dragon that will kill us. We must leave no high places in our lives. We must leave no false altars in our lives. We must leave no false idols or gods. They shall be burned. All must be consumed by God's consuming fire because he is a jealous God. This is a war worth fighting. It's a war worth fighting, beloved, that we would kill our sin. Do you have idols in your life that remain standing? God is a jealous God. Tear them down. Do you have idols that you desire above the Lord? God is a jealous God. Cast them out of your heart. Do you have any idols and sins that are choking out your spiritual life? God is a jealous God. Kill them with no mercy, lest they kill you. We must kill our idols, whatever that may be. And I'll tie, spend some uh, weeks, a couple of weeks ago talking about idolatry and kind of creating this theme. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but what takes your heart above the Lord? What sins do you find yourself constantly enslaved to because of unworthy and bent desires in you that you continue to go back to? Kill them. Kill them by the grace of God. Kill them. There is nothing, no sin, no idol in your life worth having. You will be destroyed. It will slay you. Rather, we should kill those idols without mercy as the people of God. He's given us the tools to do it. My last point is, you know, when asking how do we respond, not only should we be afraid, not only should we kill our idols, but we should rejoice with great joy at the jealousy of God. We should rejoice with great joy. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but just hear me out. The same jealousy that causes God to destroy the faithless and bring his wrath upon them is the same jealousy that caused God to kill his only son on the cross and bring his wrath upon him. It's the same jealousy. It's the same jealousy that led God to the cross. Christ was stripped naked that you might be clothed, just like the idols strip us naked. Christ was put to shame that you might be honored. Christ was beaten that you might have peace. Christ was put to death that you might live. Christ's blood was poured out that you might be white as snow and I could go on and on. Instead of God killing us for our unfaithfulness and idolatry for his people, because God is jealous of his people, he slayed his only son that he might create in his son one people, pure, white as snow by the blood of Christ that would be faithful to the covenant with their God that would say over and over again, he is our God and we are his people. That would say, I long for covenant faithfulness above my idols that would repent of idolatry and follow him. This is the gospel message. God, the gospel is the gospel because God is a jealous God. He will not leave his people to the idols of the land, but he will destroy them. <clears throat> He'll destroy all the idols. Remember, God is both the author and the finisher of our faith. He's both the founder and the perfecter, depending on which translation you use. He's jealous for his children, okay? God disciplines those whom he loves, right? And it's just like 
uh, I think it's Hebrews, right? It says that basically no one, when they're getting disciplined, likes it, right? No one's like, come on, give me more, right? I want that discipline. No one likes it when they're being disciplined, but it yields fruit, right, as you get older. And it's like, it's the same thing when we discipline our kids. We don't like to do it. Well, some, some of us do. It depends, depends on what they did and how, how much I like to discipline them. But nonetheless, it's for a cause, right? It's a loving cause to discipline. And God's doing the same thing with his people. He's a jealous God. Look at me. If you are under the banner of the grace of God, he will break you. He will. He will not let you serve another. You are his. That's why it says, look, no one can get you out of the palm of his hand. I love our God. He's so good to us, right? No one could snatch you, not even yourself. If you're in the love of God, he's a jealous God. He will have his way. I think of texts like 1 Corinthians 11. And we gloss over this all the time. But 1 Corinthians 11, he's addressing uh, the Lord's Supper, we read it often as we read for the Lord's Supper, and he's addressing his people and he's saying, look, you guys are taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. You're being frivolous. This is a serious thing God's given us to do, right? And he says, because of that, for this reason, some of you are ill and some of you have died. And we gloss over that, right? And God, what he's saying there is saying, so that you don't get condemned and fall away from God, because of what you're doing with the Lord's Supper, God has made many of you sick and he has killed some of you. God will kill you to keep you. It's an amazing thing, right? God is committed. He's a jealous God. He's an amazing God. He is a loving God. There is nothing, I mean nothing, that could keep him from making you pure. God loves his bride. He is a jealous husband and he will have his bride be pure. He will love his bride to the end this is the grace of God. This is the love of God. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. So may we take the same approach that Israel did, which is go into the land, kill all the idols, have no other God but God alone, and may we feast greatly as we gather together with the saints to celebrate the goodness of God, to celebrate his keeping us, to celebrate his loving us, to celebrate his dying for us and exalting us to a place that we are not worthy of, and all of this happens in the context of us being unfaithful. Do you have things that you love above God? You're unfaithful, right? And all of this happens in the context of him loving and being gracious to us. So I could keep talking. I want to stop for the sake of time. So let us take on the pattern of God's people. Although we see it, they failed, right? This is a whole, whole thing, right? They fail over and over again. But now in the new covenant, let us walk with our God. He has given us the gospel. Let us bring covenant faithfulness. Let us slay our idols. Let us have great fear and awe as we approach this glorious and awesome God. And may we fight to the death because it's worth it. May we rejoice in him. I want to I end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, which happens often, I know. And um, I thought it was really good and, and just a good prayer at the end of this quote he has here. For us, And I just want to pray together. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to celebrate uh, baptisms after this gathering as well. We're very excited uh, to be here doing that together. Um, so let's, let's read it together and let's pray. So what Spurgeon said, he said, To abide in him only, this is true love. But to commune with the world, to find solace in our comforts, to be loving this evil world, this is vexing to our jealous Lord. Do you not believe that nine out of ten of the troubles and pains of believers are the result of their love to some other person than Christ? I do. 
And he says, this is his prayer. Nail me to thy cross, thou bleeding Savior. Put thy thorn crown upon my head to be a hedge to keep my thoughts within its bound. Oh, for a fire to burn up all my wandering loves. Oh, for a seal to stamp the name of my beloved indelibly upon my heart. Oh, love divine, expel from me all my carnal worldly loves and fill me with thyself. This is our prayer. Yes and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you humbled that you are so gracious to us. That God, you renew covenant with your people despite their unfaithfulness. And God, our prayer right now, as we just read from Spurgeon, is help us, Lord. Help us, God, not to have wandering loves, but to have one love for you. Help us not to wander off into spiritual adultery and play the harlot, but rather, God, let us in all boldness and sincerity repent of our wanderings and worship you and you alone, oh God. You are our God. We are your people. This has been the story of the book of Exodus that you are faithful to your people because you are a jealous God. God, we thank you for your jealousy towards us and your jealousy towards your deity and your glory. God, this is our hope. This is our security that we are yours. And despite how we might wander, God, that you bring us back. You're a good God. So God, with great fear and great trembling, we pray these things, Lord. We ask that you would help us to lay down our idols, to slay our sin. God, those things that we know are wrong, that we keep going back to and back to and back to, would you help us to cut it off, to kill it, Lord, and to worship you in truth and faithfulness. God, we are in great need. And Lord, right now, in your jealousy, would you rescue us and help us? And it's in your glorious and precious name we pray. Amen.